From the Federal Judicial Center in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. In the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd by police officer Derek Chauvin, while other officers looked on, the role of law enforcement in American society is being challenged and its value in black communities in particular questioned. The very visible killing of yet another unarmed black man by police sparked a national outcry that has reverberated from the streets to legislatures. I almost felt a betrayal and a hurt because it was a police officer. We expect, at least I expected personally, a lot more from police officers. It was to watch it on TV. It was just so blatant and callous that it just made me gasp for a minute. But first, I I just felt betrayed. I said there was nothing in anybody's oath that could make that right. Discussions have focused on the role local police departments and policies play in these continued killings. But U.S. probation and pretrial services officers also perform an important law enforcement function and are greatly impacted by the discussions and the decisions ultimately made. U.S. probation and pretrial services officers carry badges and are trained to carry firearms and pepper spray. They interact with police, federal investigators, prosecutors, and jail and prison officials regularly. U.S. probation officers conduct searches and seizures and can make arrests. They conduct investigations of those arrested or convicted, which include interviews with defendants and their family members. The information they gather is used by courts to determine whether a defendant will be released or detained before trial and to determine appropriate sentences. And these officers are responsible for proactively supervising and providing support to high-risk individuals in the community, in doing so, keeping the community safe. More recently, Rayshard Brooks, an unarmed 27-year-old African-American man killed by Atlanta police just a few weeks after Mr. Floyd's death, was one of 4.5 million people on probation and parole in the United States. Mr. Brooks, who was married with four young children, was on local probation when he was shot in the back by police officer Garrett Rolfe as he attempted to flee for reasons many want to speculate about. African-American people have a unique history with the police, fraught with such interactions, and have described often feeling anxious, frightened, or even angry and resentful during such stops. When I saw it unfold, I had a feeling of sadness. Also, I thought uh, this could have realistically been me. That's what I thought as a, as a black male, even though I might or some might consider me to be somewhat of an accomplished individual, you know, uh, from a professional, I guess, uh, standpoint, I felt that it could have been me. As the author, lawyer, and commentator Van Jones recently remarked, it is safe to assume that Brooks did not want to go back to jail over sleeping in his car or failing a sobriety test, lose everything he had, and be forced to start his life over again. What this tells us is that probation and pretrial services work is inextricably linked to issues of law enforcement and community relations, and how officers doing such work impact the lives of and are perceived by African Americans and people of color more generally. They have both an impact on these issues and are impacted by them. The news media have reported many stories recently about how killings like those of Mr. Floyd and Mr. Brooks and the resulting mass protests taking place across the country and the world have been difficult for black law enforcement officers, causing them to struggle with conflicting feelings. But there's been little, if any, reporting about how African-American probation and pretrial officers have been affected. Today on Off Paper, we explore these issues. To help us do so... I'll be joined by three recently retired African-American chief U.S. probation and pretrial services officers who will talk about their lives and careers. Yador Harrell served as chief U.S. probation officer in the Northern District of California for 11 years and chief U.S. probation and pretrial services officer in the Northern District of Alabama for just under two years. Belinda Alexander Ashley was the Chief U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Officer in the Western District of Pennsylvania for seven years. Tony Anderson served as Chief U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Officer for the Eastern District of Tennessee for 13 years. They'll share their views about what must change in probation and pretrial work if black people, officers, clients, and communities are to obtain what the author and historian Richard Kluger has called simple justice when describing the history of desegregation and education, or, in this case, perhaps justice that is simply fair. Stay with us. 
It's an honor and privilege to have these three former chiefs take a break from their lives in retirement to talk with us today. Welcome to all of you. Thank you, Mark. Thank Thank you, you, Mark. I want to begin by asking each of you where you grew up and what your lives were like as kids, teenagers, and young adults before you even got into your careers. I'm particularly interested in hearing about your perceptions of police and law enforcement as you were growing up and what influenced those perceptions. Yador Harrell served as Chief U.S. Probation Officer in the Northern District of California for 11 years and Chief U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Officer in the Northern District of Alabama for just under two years. Before that, he was an officer in the Southern District of Ohio, a senior officer and supervisor in the Eastern District of Arkansas, and Deputy Chief in the District of Nebraska. He began his career as a drug treatment and mental health counselor in Montgomery County, Ohio. Chief Harrell was a member of the Administrative Office of the U.S. Court's Chief's Advisory Group and chaired the Federal Judicial Center's Advisory Committee on Probation and Pretrial Services Education. He retired in April of this year. Eudora Harrell, what was your early life like? In order to explain my view on this topic, I first need to provide you with some context. I spent the first four and a half years of my formative life growing up in a de facto segregated deep red state. And this state in particular did not care for individuals from underrepresented demographics and or populations. And unfortunately, this state had a history that I was not yet familiar with, but I was born into. This state had a history that included an individual by the name of Bull Connor, who unleashed hoses, dogs, and batons on freedom riders a history where Martin Luther King wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail on the margins of a newspaper because they wouldn't allow him to have actual writing paper in his cell. A state where they had a history where four beautiful young ladies had their lives extinguished as a result of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. A state that had a history where the former governor blocked the doors of the University of Alabama to prevent integration and where peaceful demonstrators, in an effort to exercise their constitutional rights by marching across the Alabama River on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, were beaten mercilessly. And again, although I was not yet familiar with that history, I do know what it feels like to grow up under generational systemic inequality. To have my first images as a child is of men, white men, walking down the street or marching down the street in white robes with funny white caps. Then to turn the news on and see individuals that look like me being beaten, having hoses turned on them. And then you just oppose that to watching the news about the Vietnam War and knowing that my father is serving in the military, coming back in body bags. And then as an adult, you realize that although as a country we went through the Emancipation Proclamation, we had Jim Croatian, but when my father came back to the States, he still wouldn't have his fair and equal socialization. So you see this imagery, and this is how things are formed. And then you fast forward to the day, and I see an individual for eight minutes and 46 seconds had their knee on the neck of George Floyd and they extinguished his life. So just as a child, when I watched the news and I saw these men in these robes and these funny hats and I asked my mother why, today I still have to ask myself why. So, Eudora, let me ask you, you know, you ended up eventually going into U.S. probation and pretrial. There is a a significant, though certainly not exclusive, law enforcement function. Um, And so I'm wondering what drew you to that? Thanks, Mark. It's a great question. The reality is, even at that early age, I realized somehow I had to be a change agent. How could I affect positive change in the community? Initially, it was looking at going into law enforcement. You can't change a system if you're not in the system. So I wanted to look at that. And of course, I think young kids and everybody explored and you looked at the police force and the FBI and the other agencies. But I was fortunate enough to have an internship in college and I had the opportunity to intern for probation. 
And I realized that a probation officer actually has the opportunity to live in both worlds. You're not really law enforcement. You're not really social work, but you're right there in the middle. Then I realized that I had the opportunity when I wrote my pre-sentence investigation reports that I could give these individuals actual realistic conditions that could change the trajectory of their lives. And part of that was plugging them into the right programs to make them successful. The individuals that some people think that aren't that great can do amazing and accomplish amazing things if just given an opportunity. Tony Anderson served as Chief U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Officer for the Eastern District of Tennessee for 13 years. Before that, he was an officer, supervisor, and deputy chief in the Western District of Michigan for 10 years. He began his career as a police officer in Wilmington, North Carolina, and went on to work as a North Carolina drug and alcohol law enforcement agent and North Carolina probation and parole officer before joining U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services. Chief Anderson was a member of the Administrative Office's Chief's Advisory Group and served as the group's liaison to the FJC's Probation and Pretrial Services Education Advisory Committee. He retired in 2019. I uh, grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I was adopted at approximately one years of age by a widow who had uh, lost her husband in World War, uh, a World War II veteran to cancer, okay? Uh, my mother was uh, loving, wise, hardworking, and well-respected in and outside of the community we lived. So I grew up uh, during the desegregation movement in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Uh, most of the adults in my neighborhood were educators. The neighborhood housed a range of laborers who worked at R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. Some worked as plumbers, carpenters, attorneys, nurses, doctors, and predominantly Black-owned cab uh, and bus companies. Uh, So the children in the neighborhood were a representation uh, of the group of adults who had varying levels of education, experience, and socioeconomic status. Um, It's important for me to note that I grew up only one and a half, maybe two miles from Winston-Salem State at the time. Teachers College is now Winston-Salem State University and 20 minutes from North Carolina A&T, where one of the first civil rights sit-ins was initiated. Uh, I had to walk through the Winston-Salem State University campus every day to get to and from elementary school. My observations and interactions with young black Uh, college students reinforced my pride for being black in America. And it helped me learn early on that going to college was not just a dream, but it was a reality for a young black man like myself. During the time that I I grew up, uh, they had what you call uh, salt and pepper teams. And what that essentially was, was a black cop and a white cop. They were required to work together uh, because as Uh, Absurd as it seems or it might sound, uh, African-American cops were not allowed to arrest a white man. Uh, So they kind of, I want to say, worked in tandem with one another. And it probably wasn't a good idea during those times for a white man to arrest a black man in predominantly black neighborhood. When this salt and pepper team came around, uh, people act acted differently. The people who I knew to be rough and tough and and probably uh, on the cusp of, you know, being somewhat unruly, uh, straightened up a little bit when uh, this team came around. I liked and was attracted to the power uh, that they represented. Uh, they were uh, they had relationships with people in the neighborhood. You know, like I said, a wide range of people respected them. And there was a probably a small uh, segment of the population that probably didn't have a lot of respect for them. But uh, as I began to uh, get older and, and and understand, you know, how law enforcement works, uh, this is probably what attracted me to uh, thinking about going into the law enforcement field. Belinda Alexander Ashley was the chief U.S. probation and pretrial services officer in the Western District of Pennsylvania for seven years. Before that, she was an officer in the Northern District of Oklahoma for 11 years and a senior officer and supervisor in the Eastern District of Missouri for four years. And before that, for five years, she was a police officer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She retired in 2018. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That We were 
the place where the 1921 uh, race riots occurred. And I grew up just miles away from uh, Black Wall Street, that that whole area. So I was very aware of what had happened in the violent history there. And my family, uh, my dad was a police officer. My uncle was a police officer. Um, myself, uh, one of my brothers and my brother-in-law are still there. So we had a history. But my father was very, very particular. He wanted to be a part of changing uh, the community in a positive way. So that's his way of contributing. And he taught us that that's what he believed in. So it wasn't unusual for me and my brother both to go into the uh, police profession. But he believed that's the only way that you can make a change is if you're a part of it. And it wasn't the best system, but it's what we had. So um, we, we did grow up in that area. I was aware of, um, of of racism that went on, but for me, my father did not bring that home. He didn't uh, talk a lot about what was going on on the job. He tried to protect us. And then when I came on the police department, I had a sense of trying to protect our history as well, because they were hardworking people. And the one thing he taught us that he wanted us to be proud of who we were and that we worked hard for that. So as a woman, especially, we weren't treated the same. They didn't have the same expectations for uh, on the police department for women as they did men. Now, I did pretty much everything I could think of to have my stats high, to make sure I took care of the community. I tried it to be fair because uh, this was the same community that I grew up in. I opted to work in the same community where I was at. So I wanted to make a difference there as well and uh, see what was going on. And, and like Tony and your uh, door, I, I thought I could make a difference. And I believe I did and brought a fairness there. And I think that was respected. Uh, I actually got into uh, probation through the police department. Uh it was a, a young lady that was a captain. She was actually a captain for my brother. She had just been watching, and I did not know at the time that she watched the way that I worked. And she said, I think you could be more impactful if you go to the probation office. I thought at first, I said, you trying to get rid of me? <laughs> uh, but she really wasn't. She gave me some sound advice. And it was hard to tell my, my dad, who had been there for over 30 years, to tell him that I wanted to go to probation. And but he understood and he, he knew uh, the captain who had told me that. And she said, this is something I would have done had I have known about probation and what the long term effects. Because on the police department, we have short term uh, effects. We take people to jail. Sometimes we don't see them in that long term capacity, but we could in probation. And she thought I had the personality to impact people long term and to follow and maybe have uh, more, uh, uh, give them a sense of somebody cared for them and that wanted to see them succeed. So that's how I was drawn to probation. And at uh, her urging, I did apply and eventually got on. And it was a good decision because I did enjoy and still do enjoy the impact that we can have on the people uh, returning from prison. So I, I want I want to continue this this discussion very much about your uh, your career pathways. Eventually, the three of you became leaders in U.S. probation and pretrial services. You really rose to the top of the profession, um, and you know it would be helpful to sort of do an even deeper dive into to how you got there. Um, and I want to uh, turn your attention now uh, to an opinion piece that appeared in the New York Times just the other day. It was written by Major David Hughes, who is a black police officer in southeastern Virginia. Um, He wrote the following, and I'd like to read it to you and get your reactions to it. He writes, When I entered the police force in Virginia in 1987, I was one of the few black officers in my department. On my first day on patrol, I was paired with an experienced white officer. As we prepared to hit the streets, he went over what he expected from me as a rookie. Then, as he pulled away from the curb, he added offhandedly, Oh, if I call someone the N-word tonight, don't get upset. It's not directed at you. It's directed at them. I was taken aback, but I didn't say anything. It was only my second week on the job. I was young. I remember thinking to myself, I probably won't have this job long. That first night set the tone for what was to come. I kept my job and climbed the ranks over three decades, in part because I learned how to navigate a racist system. 
Tony Anderson, you know, you began your career as a police officer. So does David Hughes' story feel at all familiar to you in terms of your own experience, either as a police officer or probation officer or both? As a police officer, going back to 1984, I was coming into the department on the heels of them having had a, a race riot. In my case, I had a white training officer who I would consider to be a really good training officer. Um, I never saw from him uh, any issues that caused me any consternation or any thought about race. Uh, he was all about doing the right thing for everybody. So I had an exceptional training officer, if I might uh, put that plug in uh, at this time. But there were some other officers that just so happened to be white that he would caution me to be careful about uh, uh, because they probably he knew that they saw things a little differently than than he did. I had a relationship with a wide range of uh, people. And, um, you know, uh, to me, uh, that was necessary for me not only to be able to do my job, but it was also necessary for me to be safe uh, in the community because there were a lot of times where people in the community kept you from getting hurt. Uh, and uh, so uh, I would say that that is probably uh, the foundation that I had in terms of coming to the police department. I had uh, uh, some of my uh, African-American uh, uh, colleagues to tell me to watch out for a particular captain, uh, that the captain may have not been partial towards African-American uh, officers, but uh, I was always treated, in my opinion, uh, fairly. But I did see a lot of injustices, and it does, like uh, the gentleman wrote, cause you a lot of times to wonder if you are in some respect uh, not being true to your own race when you see things and hear things like what you described. Uh, but um, anytime I had a situation that caused me that type of conflict, I basically uh, let it go. I, I want to turn to you, Dor, because you came up through the ranks in U.S. probation and pretrial in a different way. You did not. You were not a, uh, a sort of a, a police officer or a patrol officer. But I'm also wondering, as as you were listening to that little excerpt from David Hughes's piece, what that brought to mind for you in terms of your own experience, Yador? I, I think it's the common experience that individuals of color that kind of like Tony was talking about is that dichotomy or duality that you experience as an individual of color. And going back and listening to that, I, it takes me and it harkens me all the way back to my first job in Southern Ohio when I was out in the field with a supervisor that was from Kentucky. So we're looking for a residence and we can't quite find it. And I'm driving down the street. And because I had already covered that area, I knew where I was going. And he looked at me and said, boy, where are you going? So when he said, boy, where are you going? I immediately pulled the government car over to the side. I parked it and put the car in park. And I said, uh, who are you calling a boy? I said, I haven't been called a boy since I was 18. And the last person that called me a boy was my mother. And I'm not a boy. I'm a man. Who are you speaking to? And after that, I think he realized that I'm like, hey, I'm not going to put up with this. But the reality is that when you're a person of color, you constantly have to fight through all these limitations and these constrictions. And you have to make certain decisions over the course of your career about I might want the approval or the applause of my peers, but I first have to be true to myself. And I can't take all this time to try to impress people that don't even like me or trust me anyway. The reality is that you have to be competent enough in yourself to develop your own self-approval. And one thing that my parents said to me a long time ago is that the more you try to conform to others, the less they applaud who you really are and that you'll never be popular until you're authentic. And then my grandfather always talked about be a trailblazer, not just another one in a long lineup. But the reality is we also realize that trailblazers sometimes aren't successful and they don't go far because they're the first ones. So growing up through the system, I had to realize that I had to make the decisions about how I want to be viewed. How do I want to do certain things? So then when you get into certain positions of authority and you work your way up through the rank, 
going from a supervisor to a deputy chief to a chief, you learn certain skill sets when you're a person of culture that you have to realize, that you understand that you have to have this context mastery that others individuals don't, that you, because of who you are, have to speak with this very clear precision and have this clear calculated form of thought before it ever becomes a spoken word because you realize anything and everything that you say is gonna be turned around, scrutinized and contorted to say, that's not what you said. So you develop all of these skill sets realizing this is what's going on during the course of your career. So you deal with issues that individuals that are not of culture will never have an idea about. And oftentimes it's amazing how something that's an allegation becomes actionable when you're a person of color that people want to look into and they want to investigate it. But for me, there's truth to that statement is that you have to look at the duality. You have to look at the dichotomy. And Tony kind of alluded to it. We're in a very unique dynamic. We often worship in the same communities where our clients live. We often shop and we go back because the reality is, is that it's community-based supervision. You can't supervise the community if you're not in the community. So most officers of color will go back to the community that they supervise. They will ingrain themselves into the community and then they become part of the community. And that's why I think some officers of color are more successful because then that's when the mother, the grandmother, the aunt are willing to tell you because they said, hey, such and such is messing up. I want you to help them. I don't want them to get in trouble. Then we intervene and we do different things. So it's a certain skill set that we have. Uh, it's probably not the way, right way of putting it, but Tony, me, Belinda, and other people of culture, we have to be somewhat linguistically ambidextrous, if you will. We have to be able to speak different languages on different levels of society and say, I can relate to my client in the community without putting them or their family down. And at the same time, I can talk to the chief United States district court judge. That's a skill set that a lot of individuals don't have. So for me growing up, those are skill sets that you have to learn. Those are some of the things that you have to adopt to. And if throughout the course of my career, if something I did helped position somebody else to get to where they need to be, then I think I did my job. Belinda Ashley, coming to you, uh, you know, you're, you came up professionally somewhat similarly to the way Tony did, starting in traditional law enforcement, the police department in Tulsa. However, uh, there was an important difference between yours and Tony's experience in that this was really very much a part of your the family business for you. Uh, your dad, many family members were police officers. But again, sort of hearkening back to, to David Hughes's piece in the New York Times, I wonder whether there was anything from that piece that struck a chord with you in terms of your own experience. I think it did. I learned to navigate the system as well. You just you have different ways of communicating with different people. And in the community, that was the same. But on the police department, I mean, I had a little bit different because like when I was in the training academy, things were different. My father actually came out to watch when I we had exercises, we did testing. So that put a lot of pressure on me, but it also made me stand up and recognize that I had to make decisions for myself. Because a couple of times, sometimes the classmates would get together. And I remember on one occasion, they wanted us to say that there wasn't supposed to be a test because it wasn't announced. I knew it was. I got kind of uh, in hot water with some of the officers because I would not go along with that. I know what it was. I was prepared for the test. I wasn't starting my career that way. They got used to that, you know, and I was asked uh, when I was uh, got on in the field training. And then after I released on my own, one of the officers asked me, uh, where do you stand? Are you going to you honor the blue line? I said, if it's true, if you don't be doing nothing that you you can't stay in court because I'm not going along with that. And they honored that and they respected that. And I don't know because other officers were not treated that way, but because I had family there, they honored that and they respected that because they didn't want to deal with the family. I recognized because of that, a lot of other people were treated very differently. And they, if they didn't go along with things, things were a lot different. So it, it was a little bit different for me personally, but there were different conditions and people treated very differently when they were of color. And there was sometimes as a woman, there wasn't very many women on midnight shift. I was it. 
This is Off Paper. I'm Mark Sherman, and I'm talking with former Chief U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Officers Yador Harrell, Belinda Ashley, and Tony Anderson about their lives and careers, how they've been affected by racism over the years, and what they've learned. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, I'll ask the chiefs about their reactions to the killing of George Floyd and the resulting national and worldwide protests. Back in a moment. Hi, I'm Lori Murphy, host of the FJC's In Session Leading the Judiciary podcast. I want to tell you about an episode I think you'll enjoy. In episode 15, I talked with Stanford professor Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, author of Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. Dr. Eberhardt and I discussed the negative impacts of racial bias and how awareness and thoughtful action can help remedy those impacts. If you subscribe to Off Paper, this episode of In Session will appear as a bonus episode in your feed. Listen to In Session, Episode 15, Understanding and Combating Racial Bias, and tell us what you think. Belinda Ashley, when you heard about the killing of Mr. Floyd, how did you react, and did this time feel different to you? Yes, it did. Uh, the, the, I can't tell you how badly I felt. I almost felt a betrayal and a hurt because it was a police officer. We expect, at least I expected personally, a lot more from police officers, but I couldn't imagine what you could be, what it could be that you would think it would be okay to sit with your knee over eight minutes on a man's neck and with your hands in your pocket and think that's okay. And if it wasn't worse than that, to have officers around in the area watching and not stop it. It just, something inside said, no, silence is no longer an option for me. I I wanted, it just hurt so badly to watch that. But the one thing that came out of that for me that was so good is to hear the protests, the people coming out and supporting the multicultural support. But this was different. It was to watch it on TV. It was just so blatant and callous that it just made me gasp for a minute. But first, I I just felt betrayed. I said there was nothing in anybody's oath that could make that right. But like I said, I, I, I couldn't fathom what that man felt or his family felt going through that. But this is a different time. I recognize right after that, this was a very, very different time. People are are recognizing that this is not okay. This is not okay for our law enforcement to to engage in, that we have got a problem. I I love our officers. I'm in that family. I, uh, my, my, my uh, family are still in the law enforcement field. Some people are, are brushing with a broad stroke, saying the police officers, they're, they're all brushed with the same stroke and they're all bad. But that is not the case. We have great officers out there doing great things, but we have, a, we have an undercurrent of officers that are not doing something right. And this was one of those cases that this cannot stand. Uh, I could no longer just think this, 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 this was just something so appalling that I just could not sit still after that. Uh, but the one good thing that has come out of that, a lot of my friends, a lot of people at church, every, uh, it's across, I have a lot of white friends, a uh, lot of different races. They're engaging in a conversation now with me. They're talking about asking questions. What do you feel? Do you really have to have those conversations with your kids? Or how, how can it be that in this day and age, this is still happening? They did not recognize and they did not recognize that we have to navigate differently as African-Americans to just be on a job. I remember at one time uh, being uh, interviewed for a job on the on the phone and somebody not being able to pick up that I was an African-American. And the reason I say that they invited me down. I had my master's degree and I had uh, my bachelor's degree at that point. They said, oh, you you, you sound like you're a great candidate. We're going to I want you to come down and fill out the paperwork. This was a small company in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I got down there, went in the door and realized, and and it was like a deer in the headlights. They looked at me and said, we don't have a position open. I explained to them, I said, I just got off the phone with somebody who told me to come down and put put on, uh, uh, fill out the paperwork. And they turned me around and said, no, we don't need you. And you're talking about angry and appalled. So I know this stuff exists, but George Floyd was very different. 
all these things I've gone through, I've navigated these systems. You learn to get over the anger. You learn that you have to uh, uh, feed your family. But with George Floyd, this was totally different. I, I can't tell you how it touched something inside of me, but it has touched off a conversation. And that's where I'm hoping with uh, probation and pretrial services that that's where we'll be starting to uh, talk openly, honestly, and to give people a safe space to talk because I'm, I'm recognizing that people do want to talk about it. People in different cultures want to talk to African-Americans about what it is that they have to do, what they face, how they speak to their children, what what you anticipate on the streets when you're just walking or how people will, will address you. Because sometimes in stores, people follow you around. They want to know about that. And some did not know. They were sheltered enough not to realize nor thought that was anything they could care about. That's what it did for me. It's, it's now make me made me more engaged and have so many people out and supporting uh, the effort. I think this is a good thing. Tony Anderson, uh, same thing. I want to ask you sort of what your reaction was. What do you think all of this means for uh, for black probation and pretrial officers who are currently still in the system and and on the job? When I saw it unfold, I had a feeling of sadness, uh, similar to what Belinda shared. Uh, I felt that the United States is too great of a country to continue to have racial issues, inequality, and social unrest without making forward progress. Uh, It's important to note that I've never received any training on a local, state, or federal level that is similar to the technique used on Mr. Floyd. Um, I've never witnessed anyone put a knee on an individual's neck and use that technique um, to include full body weight of two other officers on an individual that is handcuffed. Okay. Uh, Also, I thought uh, this could have realistically been me. That's what I thought as as a black male, even though I might or some might consider me to be somewhat of an accomplished individual, you know, uh, from a professional, I guess, uh, standpoint, I felt that it could have been me. Uh, While uh, it might be hard, you know, to believe that the treatment of black and brown people by some law enforcement officers is not just limited to a particular category. That's what I I thought, or socioeconomic status. To me, Mr. Floyd's uh, situation and the death of other brown and black people while in police custody is not about politics. Instead, uh, it is about culture uh, that time and time again views brown and black people as a threat to life, current status and privilege. This issue with Mr. Floyd, in my opinion, was a humanitarian issue. If you're a human being and you have any fiber within you that uh, has empathy, you know, for other people, uh, you couldn't help but look at that and feel bad, you know, for uh, him and his family. And, you know, as it relates to how probation and parole on a federal level, uh, even even on a state level uh, goes forward, uh, I'd have to say to you that in all honesty, I struggled. Uh, I struggled with that question because I believe there is already a significant amount of disparity in the federal probation and pretrial services system. Uh, I completed 23 years of service in December of 2019, and I'm thankful for all the opportunities that I have been afforded uh, as an officer, a suspo, deputy chief, and chief. However, if we're going to be honest and, and have this conversation uh, and talk about George Floyd, race is attached uh, to the question of how probation and pretrial services must evolve. Uh, I think the topic of race has to be uh, broached because the U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services offices uh, provide services to the public along with a range of other stakeholders. Uh, we know that the court uh, is the primary stakeholder for both probation and pretrial services. And then the rest of the stakeholders, which, you know, we talk about the defendant, offender population, U.S. Attorney's Office, Marshals uh, Service, uh, Public Defender, Panel Attorneys, and the BOP. Uh, fall in those uh, categories and stakeholders as well. But what no one seems to talk about, uh, in my opinion, is there is uh, no formal instruction offered uh, in this area of race. Uh, But the U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services officers, to include my position as chief, should look like the community slash the nation it serves. And and I don't believe uh, that it looks that way. 
Yador Harrell, same uh, line of questions. Thank you, Mark. No rationally thinking individual could have watched that and not been angry and or upset about it. But the reality is, is that the past still remains the most reliable test of the present and the future. That's just a reality. Inequality is not new. Police brutality is not new. What is new or what is newish, because we saw this during the Rodney King thing, is that now the rest of America and the rest of the world can now see on TV and social media what disadvantaged individuals have seen for themselves with their own eyes and bared witness to and had no recourse. That's just the reality. We're trying to make this too complicated. The greatest complexity is found in its simplicity. We have eyes. We see what happened. Do not allow the media or other individuals to try to normalize hate and say this is okay. We talked about it earlier on in the session. In the mid-50s and the 60s, we had the same thing. This militarized police, this police brutality, water hoses, dogs, batons, beating individuals down. When is enough? When are we gonna stop asking why and when are we gonna take action? That's just the reality. And I think if we're gonna be honest with ourselves, individuals of culture, whether they're black, brown, or Asian, in the system are angry, but they don't have a way to voice that anger without retribution, without retaliation. As Tony alluded to, we have not sat down and had a session where we said, we're actually going to really look at race-based diversity education, that we're gonna look at racial justice, that we're gonna look at other things. We need to set up a mechanism to say that, hey, not only on paper do we want our districts to be reflective of the clientele that we serve, we want the mindset to be reflective of the clientele that we serve. That just because somebody looks different from me doesn't mean that's bad. The reality is that whoever you are, you will always struggle to understand somebody that does not look like you. You don't have that same shared experience. But until you take the opportunity to leave the comfort of your office, and go into that community, you'll never know how that community reflects. I think we fall short and we fail to cross train our officers when we don't say, we're gonna put individuals that might not look like that community in that community so they have a frame of reference. You can't just have individuals that look like their clients. You'll never cross train, you'll never professionally develop individuals and get them to where they need to be. This is beyond culture. But I like what uh, Dr. Uh, Carr, the uh, director of Africana Studies at Howard said, is that it's cultural. And cultural is learned behavior that is so deeply ingrained in individuals that you do it subconsciously. At this point, some people have been raised subconsciously to do things that they don't even know it's wrong because they never had the opportunity to have somebody to correct them. We've never created an avenue, we never created a venue to just say, hey, we're actually going to sit down and have this conversation. And I think the fear is of individuals of culture from underrepresented populations inside the districts right now, that they're fearful that if I say something about race, if I say something about implicit bias, somehow I'm gonna be targeted and I don't have a safe avenue to address that issue. So I think we need to go back and say, hey, I'm going to create a safe environment. I'm gonna give you the opportunity to discuss these issues so we don't have to see someone's knee on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds for somebody to get upset and angry for the world to now say enough is enough. We have to say that it should have never happened in the first place. We talk about re-entry, let's start talking about no entry by getting into the community, training staff and doing better. That's just my view on the point. Former Chief U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Officers Yador Harrell, Belinda Ashley, and Tony Anderson are my guests. They're sharing their reflections as African Americans who spent their careers as probation and pretrial officers, and in the case of both Chief Anderson and Chief Ashley, as police officers before that. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we'll get their thoughts about how federal probation and pretrial services must evolve to better meet the needs of black officers, clients, and communities. You're listening to Off Paper. It is not easy when you're an individual of color and you go into a meeting and nine times out of 10, you're the only one that looks like you. 
it's very difficult to be courageous and to talk about other things. But we need individuals that are willing to elevate, to go in those positions, to be a trailblazer and realize that, hey, I might not accomplish what I wanted to, but I've developed enough individuals behind me that I can pass that baton on to that individual and hopefully have them carry forth the dream and the issue and make it possible for other individuals to continue to come into the system. But again, if we're not willing to first have the conversation, we're not gonna get to where we need to be. Support for this program comes from FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education. At FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education, we believe transformative education and training are essential to the administration of justice. We use proven learning methods to inform, engage, and inspire the people we serve to reach individual and organizational excellence. Visit us at fjc.dcn forward slash p ampersand p. Support also comes from the Advisory Committee on Probation and Pretrial Services Education. The Advisory Committee consists of Chief U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Officers, Deputy Chiefs, Supervisory Officers, Line Officers, and Representatives of the AOUSC Office of Probation and Pretrial Services. It works collaboratively with FJC staff to meet the continuing professional education needs of U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services officers. For more information, go to fjc.dcn. Yador Harrell, you served for a number of years as Chief Probation Officer in two very different districts. In your opinion, what are the most important issues of racism currently affecting federal probation and pretrial services and the federal judiciary writ large? And in your view, what must the system do to evolve? Thank you, Mark. What I would have to say is the reality is that people in positions of power, change makers have to be willing to do what you're courageous enough to do right now, Mark, is to at least have the discussion, to have the conversation. If we do not want to become a product of our own low expectations, we have to be willing to deconstruct and reverse engineer everything that we've been doing. We have to go back and we have to look at our hiring, promotions, retention, ongoing fair employment practices. And that's some of the things that the officers that are still within the system are saying that how uncomfortable it is when they initially interview for a job and there's nobody on the panel that looks like them. And then when they go up for promotions, there's nobody on the panel that looks like them that has shared experiences with them. Not saying that they're gonna get the job just because the individual looks like them, but they know that after the interview, somebody's gonna be at that table to say, hey, let's look at this and let's take this into perspective. This is what this individual brought. You're looking totally at their grade point average. I'm looking at their accomplishments and what they've done. We also have to be willing to look at moving back to the center. We have to stop being so law enforcement oriented. We have to look at data mining. We have to examine the data on current hiring practices, promotions, and retention practices where race may have played a role. We also have to look at forming advisory groups. We have to look at retired probation officers and pretrial services officers and have them serve as liaisons to existing entities within the judiciary, like the administrative office, like the Office of Personal Management, like the Federal Judicial Center, and local districts to help create a culture of diversity and inclusion. It wouldn't hurt if we had a diversity and inclusion rep in each circuit. What about having a governance council to talk about things that work alongside the chief advisory group? Then we also have to look at education. We have to have true race-based diversity education. Maybe the FJC and their infinite wisdom with your leadership, Mark, could look at racial justice, a leadership curriculum. We could look at implicit bias. Look at other things. What we need to also do is that we need to look at how can we retrain our EDR coordinators and managers so they can actually look at race-based implicit bias. Can we create a fair avenue for staff to voice race-based discrimination issues? And then can we protect those employees who voice race-based concerns so they are not retaliated against or looked on unfavorably? These are some of the things that we need to do. 
the reality is I saw it. I'm sure Tony saw it. I saw sure Belinda saw it. Individuals of culture, when you sit down and you look at training individuals and creating a district and improving it, and you have interviews and you set up a fair, transparent, competitive process, and you have subject matter experts sitting on your panel, and then you select individuals based on their knowledge, skills, and abilities and accomplishments, not some ambiguity about the individual has all these great abilities, but a proven track record, and then you try to promote that individual and the court tells you no, that creates issues within the system because then the best candidate isn't selected. The one that can implement that change to have things to go, have the district go where it needs to be, isn't going to happen. So until we're willing to have a very honest and true conversation with us, until we're willing to put the right people in the right positions to do the right jobs that want to effectively change, we're not really going to progress. We're really not going to move forward as a system. And we have to realize that, hey, this isn't an imposter syndrome. Just because I look different from you doesn't mean I shouldn't have this job. And as a unit executive of color, I should never have to apologize for being in a room that I know I belong in. It is not easy when you're an individual of color and you go into a meeting and nine times out of 10, you're the only one that looks like you. It's very difficult to be courageous and to talk about other things. But we need individuals that are willing to elevate, to go in those positions, to be a trailblazer and realize that hey, I might not accomplish what I wanted to, but I've developed enough individuals behind me that I can pass that baton on to that individual and hopefully have them carry forth the dream and the issue and make it possible for other individuals to continue to come into the system. But again, if we're not willing to first have the conversation, we're not going to get to where we need to be. Thank you. Belinda, I want to turn to you. Uh, You were the chief probation and pretrial officer in the Western District of Pennsylvania, which is based in Pittsburgh. And I wonder sort of what your um, view is about how the system needs to evolve in order to improve. I agree wholeheartedly with uh, Yador and his feelings. I think we also need to step back. And in my opinion, the AO needs to to, uh, at least tell the, 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 the staff across the nation what their position is on racism, whether they're what they are willing to do a bit about it, what actions and how they feel about it. Because not everybody may be understanding that racism is not a place or, 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 or a place where we're going and we want to eliminate it. But we got to start somewhere. And I got it. I believe that it's got to start at the top and let people know where exactly we go. And then we need people to be courageous. Just like Eudora uh, uh, said, it, we have to be courageous, being able to have those conversations and they have to be honest so that people are, don't feel like they're gonna be retaliated against, that they're not gonna see promotions because they really share what they really feel. Uh, the most um, areas I think that we can evolve in uh, that I, I, I saw is hiring and promotions. I wanted that transparent process as well. So I included a lot of staff, but you also can, uh, if you're not trained on what to look at, how uh, you are to ga- engage people and how do you, I, I just look at them beyond just the color of their skin or whether they fit into your group. We have to get beyond that. We have to look at the qualifications. And I don't know that anybody that I know of was actually trained in that so that they understood and understood the position of the AO. I know we have policies and procedures, but not everybody understands what that means, how they interpret. I want people that look like me so they're going to be successful. It depends on what you're doing. So that, to me, I think would be a great help for us to start to evolve top down people start to put what actually be courageous enough to tell what their position is. This is not anything that we're going to tolerate. We're going to go forward and we're going to do some things differently. Don't have to point people out, but just say certain behaviors will not be tolerated and we move forward. And then we give people a safe space to talk about that because I know, and what I'm, what I've heard uh, from other officers that are still there is that they want a safe place that they can speak 
They can really tell the truth about what they are experiencing, how they are are uh, viewed from other people who are, are working in their district or uh, in their office so that they, they have a safe place that they can actually tell somebody I'm not being treated wait, I'm being pressured to do certain things or to not have a voice at all. So those are the kind of things I think we need to start off with. And then uh, have that have that advisory committee like uh, Yudor was uh, talking about. We have to have people included in that from a lot of nationalities, people of color, but also of other nationalities start to share experience. So they have that understanding, that deep understanding of what experience that they have. Because in talking to people, especially from church and other areas of my life, I realized they don't have a clue about what we actually experience, what conversations we have with our children about, okay, how do you engage with police officers? When you're walking down the street and somebody may engage you or or, or call you names, and that happens, and we have to deal with that and not feel devalued. So I think sharing those experiences, at least for me, it's been very um, positive when people start to say, I'm going to start paying attention a little more. I'm I'm not going to do certain things that maybe would be interpreted other ways, because sometimes people are just doing things they're not thinking. But now, at least the ones I've talked to, and they they like that. And so I think that would be helpful for the probation and pretrial officers to know and have that person and even have that uh, advocate there to say, this is not what we want to see. Or if people have a place to complain. uh, and like I said, it, the rest of it is pretty similar to what uh, your door was talking about is developing that training um, of reviewing the practice and procedures. I think if they can work through those types of things to see what across the nation, what policies, because we're all from different uh, parts of the nation, but we have very similar stories that should not be happening. That tells me we have a systemic problem that we probably need to address. I don't know the answers to all of it, but I know that the people who are there are probably able to give some opinions and start to really have a deep conversation. And I'm not talking about a surface conversation with no action. We have to now take action and say, these are the things we're going to put in place. If we don't know and it doesn't work out the first time, we just scrap that and go to something else that makes it better. Not going to say that every solution is going to be perfect, but we've got to start to have some action behind just the talking and and the uh, review. So I do like the idea of having these advisory committees, having advocates, but they have to have the authority to put some things in action to actually make some change. Tony Anderson, again, in your mind and based on the experiences that you've had over the course of a, of a long career, starting out in, in more traditional law enforcement and then for many years in United States probation and pretrial, what are some of the things that you think need to happen in probation and pretrial for the system to evolve and, and to improve? So Belinda and uh, Yador have touched on, in my opinion, a range of uh, areas that relate specifically to this topic. Um, I'm sure like me, they can go back and remember when I first became involved in, for example, or became a panel member in uh, a number of uh, promotional and hiring uh, processes, there was always at least one panel member who would attempt to hire or promote someone uh, who would help maintain the disparity, if you will, that I previously discussed. Uh, to meet uh, his or own his or her own self-serving uh, purpose. Uh, this happened a few times uh, when I was a supervisor and deputy chief, and I had limited options to make the process fair. Uh, I did have uh, a uh, two chiefs actually, uh, one retired and then another chief replaced that chief that I had open dialogue with. I I, I could go to a safe place like uh, Belinda and your door mentioned, and I could talk about what I saw. I even took the opportunity uh, not to be challenging, but as using as much diplomacy as I could, try to point out what I might view as a problem in the hiring or the promotional process in hopes that the other members of the panel would see maybe some of the things that I saw uh, as a problem. So I would say that first of all. The other thing that I would say is as a chief probation officer in your door, touched on these areas as well, 
it seems that uh, brown and black chiefs, in my opinion, have to have a different set of skills to tap into when it comes to uh, hiring and promoting uh, uh, individuals to work in the office. You go into it uh, not having mapped out, but you go into it understanding that every decision that you make is going to be scrutinized and you have to have a, uh, a good court, which fortunately I had a great court that gave me the autonomy to hire whoever I felt like I needed to hire. And uh, if I needed to justify uh, hiring that individual, I was always able to go and identify tangible reasons why I felt that this person may not be the most qualified for the job, but they would be the best uh, candidate for what I needed for my district, if that makes any sense. Um, so so I would say to you that you you as a chief, you go into it with that kind of uh, mindset. And it's unfortunate, but that's kind of uh, what it's like or what life in the professional ranks or as an executive for um, uh, federal probation and pretrial services uh, is like. Uh, uh, particularly for a chief of uh, color. So, uh, Eudora, I'm interested to hear your reaction to to what Tony just said, because it sort of goes to this double standard, right? Uh, That for African-American chiefs, in the experience of, of at least you three, um, that the experience in the experience of the African American chief, there's a double standard, and the expectations are different, and there might even be greater liberty at the top to overrule a decision that you may have made, whereas perhaps that would not have been the case had you been white. I just wonder what your reactions are to that. Mark, you're you're spot on with your uh, summary. The reality is, is that there is this duality, is is this dichotomy that chiefs of color know going in that anything and everything you say will, as Tony indicated, be scrutinized. So you, as I stated earlier, sit down and systematically come up with a process that is fair, that follows the exact employment guidelines, the guide to judicial policies, every question that you ask, everybody that you have on your panel is a subject matter expert. You go through, you get their opinion, they write up their recommendation, they give it to you, you then write it up, you go ahead and aggregate the information and submit it to the court, knowing at the full time in the back of your mind, the court may or may not accept that recommendation from you just because you might be the one that made that recommendation. The other thing that people aren't willing to talk about, and I think just to be honest, is that I would encourage judges, magistrate and Article three judges to not serve as references for anyone that is applying for a position internally in their district unless that individual is applying for a chief job outside of their district. Because what that says to the unit executive is that this judicial authority is attempting to usurp their judicial authority to have you pre-select a candidate that in most cases is not the best qualified individual. And it puts you under all kind of stress and pressure, but you realize that. And sometimes you have to be courageous enough to say, hey, this isn't the best candidate. This is the individual that we want to go with. So, yes, at the end of the day, we know that there is a double standard. We know that we will constantly be second guessed. Whatever we say will be scrutinized, contorted, turned around, and that we will be judged differently. So that is just a harsh reality that chiefs of color from unrepresented populations have to realize. But the sad part is that it's as if somehow, some way along the line, the court interviewed us, the court selected us based on our knowledge, skills, and ability and accomplishments, then to turn around and say, hey, you're the unit executive that I selected, but we're going to go ahead and make all the decisions for you. I can't cook the dinner if you don't let me buy the ingredients. I want to ask Belinda whether what Yodora has just said and what Tony was was talking about earlier reflected your experience as a chief in the Western District of Pennsylvania. Absolutely. I think Tony and Yodora both were spot on. I did find myself scrutinized uh, a lot more. I found myself going over policies and procedures, second guessing myself because I knew I had to defend just about any decision, anything that come up. 
I had to be able to defend it. And I know I'd be under a lot of scrutiny. So, yes, that was consistent with what I saw. In a way that a white chief would not. Is that what you're Absolutely. saying? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so what the three of you are then saying, and, and, and I'll ask you individually, uh, is that uh, bottom line is that uh, there need to be some mechanisms and some policies and some attitude adjustments put in place so that that is no longer the case. Belinda, is, is that what you're proposing? Yes. Absolutely. Yador? That, I, I agree 100% that we have to put other things in place. Give us the same latitude, the same respect, and the same professional courtesy that you give individuals that don't look like us. Tony Anderson? So, Mark, I owe a great debt and gratitude to the uh, judges uh, in the Eastern District of Tennessee, as well as the judges in the Western District of Michigan, for giving me the autonomy to advertise, hire, train, and select any applicant that I believed would add value to the district uh, and staff. Um, but what comes along with that, that Belinda and your door are, are touching on is you also have to have the creativity to come up with processes that uh, you may have to show justification for, but I don't believe that my white colleagues had to go through the same process. Well, Tony Anderson, Belinda Ashley, and Yador Harrell, I want to thank you all so much for talking with us. Thank Thank you, Mark. You're very welcome. And thank Thank you. you. If you liked this episode, don't forget to check out the podcast, Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice of What We See, Think, and Do. Off Paper is produced by Shelley Easter. The program is directed by Craig Bowden. Our program coordinator is Anna Glachkova. And remember... You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.